Hey folks, Andy Patton here, another jam-packed Mailbag Monday episode of Locked On Zags coming your way, discussing what went wrong against Alabama in the battle in Seattle and how worried we should be about this team going forward. Don't go away. All coming up right after this. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is the official sponsor of ESPN College Football. Go to Sonos.com now to learn more. I also want to sincerely thank all of you for making this podcast your first listen of the day. Some of you have been with me from the beginning. Some of you are much newer to the show. Either way, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen. And of course, to those of you who check us out on YouTube, it's Locked on Zags. We're on YouTube. We've been there for about a month now. Go to YouTube.com, search Locked on Zags. Check out my social media accounts. You can find it there. Hit that subscribe button. Even if you're listening on the podcast, I appreciate it. Go out there. Hit that button anyway. Really helps us out. Boost those numbers. It's very, very much appreciated. All right, Mailbag Monday today, not the happiest Mailbag Monday segment that I have ever done by a landslide. Of course, Gonzaga got defeated in the battle in Seattle by the Alabama Crimson Tide, a day very nearly where Alabama beat both the number one team in football and basketball. Their football team beat Georgia. Their basketball team, of course, beat Gonzaga, who was not number one at the time. But still, pretty pretty nice day for the Crimson Tide, pretty bad day. For the Gonzaga Bulldogs, you can hear it in my voice a little bit, having been at the game. (laughs) It's a little bit dry right now. I apologize for that, but obviously uh, a a rough one, and we're just going to get right into some of the questions that you all had about this team. First one, this question came from multiple people, Motorhead on Twitter, Old Heffalump on Twitter, John and Larry both via Gmail. Why wasn't Chet in the game during crunch time? This is the first time he sat for an extended minutes when he wasn't in foul trouble. Yes, this is one of the biggest stories from this game. The overall management of substitutions was odd throughout the game. Mark Few made a really quick substitution early in the game to get Salas and Hickman in the game, which is not usually the routine. Usually the first player to come out is Chet. Watson goes in. Chet goes back in for Drew Timmy. That's typically how they've done things. And then you see Hickman and Salas, or sometimes just Hickman right around that time as well. It was an odd start to the game to see the substitution pattern be changed. The substitution patterns changed very radically throughout the game. I don't know if there was fatigue issues. I don't know if Mark Few was kind of continually trying to play different matchups. I don't understand exactly what all of the changing and kind of what seemed to be a lot of tinkering was was about. I do think it was very baffling that the last five minutes of the game did not include Chet Holmgren at all, especially... They, they had the block shot. Drew Timmy had the block shot. They went 76 to 72, the closest the game had been all game long, in large part due to what Chet Holmgren and Nolan Hickman had been doing. The timeout happens. Both those players come out. This was brought up by John via Gmail. I want to give him credit for, for bringing up this point. But it was kind of a baffling substitution decision. Chet only had one foul. I, I wish I had a better answer for you, I guess, is the best way that I can put this. It was a strange decision that I don't entirely understand. I can say that Drew Timmy was playing really well on both ends of the floor. I know he, he struggled offensively. He struggled with the free throws. Certainly, that was a big part of this game as well. 
and he looked he didn't look like his normal self on offense, but he did have a productive game. He was where the offense was being funneled through. He also played very well on defense. Credit where credit is due. Drew looked very good on the defensive end of the floor, not just with that epic block that he had, but he did multiple other really good things. Maybe the Zags just felt like, or maybe Mark Few and the staff just felt like playing more than one big wasn't working throughout the game, which is accurate. That is true, but it is weird to have your your you know, number one recruit, the potential top five pick in the draft, not playing in the final five minutes of a close, potentially winnable game. It was a strange decision and one that I think Mark Few and the staff, have, they have to answer for, to be quite honest. They need to, not necessarily to me or to you all as fans, but they need to figure out what why that decision was made. And if that situation comes up again, what decision they'll make there, because I don't think that that was the correct one. This next question, another one from Old Heffalump on Twitter. He says, big lineups appear to be stagnant. What are the likelihood of more small ball lineups with Strother at the four and Timmy Watson or Holmgren at the five? So I would love to see this more. I have said this quite clearly. I thought we would see it more during the season. I thought Julian kind of fit the bill of like a really good small ball four, similar to the role that Corey Kispert played at Gonzaga. I think a lot of people think of Corey as being a three. He was pretty much exclusively a four uh, on that team last year. Jalen, Joel, Andrew Nembhard all playing the three guard spots, Corey playing the four, and then Drew playing a lot of his minutes at the five. I think Julian could be a great small ball four. He's a really good rebounder, really good rebounder. The problem with this is that Drew, Chet, and Watson all need to play a lot of minutes. They're good enough, they're talented enough to be playing a lot of minutes. And if you play a lot of lineups where Julian Strother is playing the four, you only have one of those guys on the floor at the same time. And that just makes it trickier to get all those minutes in. Having said that, I would like to see this lineup more. I think five-minute stretches of games where it's either any of those three guys, Holmgren, Timmy, or Watson at the five, Strother at the four, and some combination of three of their four guards in the game is something we should see more of to help break things up, to help have a little bit more athleticism on the court, potentially run the floor a little bit more, uh, shoot the ball a little bit better, all of that stuff. I I think I'd like to see more of these lineups. I, I don't know if we will. I don't know if Mark Few is willing to try that yet, but I think it's worth a shot. Next question comes from Lucas Porter 8 on Twitter. He says, three flat starts in a row for the Zags. Is it time for a starting lineup change? So I, I thought about this one for quite a bit, Lucas. Honestly, I was kind of on the fence here. My, my ultimate answer is no. Uh, the Zags have obviously started the last couple of games out slow. That is the, indebatable. Although the Alabama game, the they got boat raced in the last 10 minutes of the first half. The first 10 minutes of the first half was actually pretty close. They weren't playing particularly well, and Alabama was a little was struggled a bit out of the shoots too, and it was just kind of a sloppy game at first. And then Alabama really ran away with it in the second half of the first half, and that was with different lineups in the game. So that wasn't entirely dependent on the starting lineup struggling. I just don't see a natural way to change the starting lineup is my main issue. Do you take out Julian Strother and play Hunter Salas? I don't know what that does differently. Julian's a better scorer. He's a better shooter. Salas is probably a better defensive player, but I think it's a negligible difference. He's not a better rebounder, although he's a good rebounder. So is Julian. Do you start Nolan Hickman? He's probably the next best player on the roster, but I don't think you start him in front of Andrew Nembhard, although I know there are people out there who who would like to see that, and I can understand the argument, certainly at least after this past game, but there's no way that they're going to do that. So you'd start N- Hickman and Nembhard. And then do you start Bolton at the three? Do you start, like, what, what, how does the line, you know, it just kind of gets a little complicated. Does Bolton go to the bench? I don't think they're going to do that. So I, it's the time of the season where you would potentially see a starting lineup change, especially after these last couple of slow starts. I just don't see an obvious one that makes sense right now. This next question comes from Larry via Gmail. He says, what is Few going to do? 
He has to change something. His guards are consistently being intimidated. They can't get open shots, and they don't defend the three very well. So I agree with all this, except I don't like the word intimidated. I think uh, seeing something happen on a basketball court and attributing uh, how the players feel and their like emotional state is just doesn't sit well with me. We don't know that Andrew Nemhard or Rasir Bolton or any of those guys were intimidated. In fact, I can tell you pretty confidently that they were not intimidated. They may have acted intimidated. They may have acted rushed or like they were pressing or they were trying too hard and all of that stuff I think is accurate, but I don't think that they were intimidated. I also don't think that the the pressure that Alabama's guards put on Gonzaga's guards was similar. It wasn't that similar to what Duke and Tarleton State did. It was different, but Gonzaga's guards, they really struggled. They, they came out flat as a unit. They didn't play well. There's not there's no other way to argue that. That's absolutely true. And yes, Mark Few has to change something. I I don't know the entire answer here. I wish I had better answers for you. I can tell you that they ran the pick and roll very poorly in this game. It seemed like when they were running the pick and roll, they were immediately looking to get Drew the ball as soon as the, the actual action happened. Way, and the guards were not looking to drive to the basket. They were not looking to pick and pop. They were only looking as soon as they came off the pick to try to get the ball to Drew. And it stagnates the offense. It slows things down. It makes it easier for Alabama to defend if they know what they're going to do with the ball. Nembhard was billed as like one of the best pick and roll point guards in the nation when he came to Gonzaga. He needs to be that again. And if for some reason he's incapable of doing that, they need to find another offensive set to run in order to get Drew Timmy the basketball or to find ways to get good-looking shots because they have not been able to do that the last couple of games. One potential answer to this question, though I kind of alluded to it, is if they can't get Nembhard to run the pick and roll well, they could potentially change some of the, the playing time rotations. And that leads into this next question, another one from Old Heffalump, who says, Hickman and Salas, do you see them getting more playing time? Nolan Hickman, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the few bright spots in this game was Nolan Hickman's performance. He had a back-to-back threes at a really critical moment late in the second half. He played excellent defense. He runs the offense very smoothly. He's in control. He's poised. He does not play like a freshman. I thought he looked excellent in this game and basically every game this season, I have thought he looked very, very good. We also saw him play a lot more down the stretch in the second half of this game. Now, he didn't play in place of Andrew Nembhard. He played mostly minutes instead of Rasir Bolton or Julian Strother. I don't know if we're going to see him play over Nembhard. It seems like Mark Few is very unwilling to make that transition and make that change. Not saying I agree with it necessarily, just not thinking that that's going to happen. For Salas, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're going to see him get a lot more playing time. He's very athletic. He's very energetic. He's a great rebounder. He's a good defensive player. I love what he brings to this team. He brings juice. He brings a a juice and an energy to this team that I love. But I don't know that he is going to definitively get more playing time. It would depend on if, if... Mark Few is willing to play Andrew Nemhard less, which he hasn't shown he's willing to do. If Bolton and Strother are going to play a few less minutes. If they do more small ball four, which we talked about earlier in this segment, and Julian plays more minutes at the four, then we might see more of Hunter Salas. Salas, he does have all the energy. He does make freshman mistakes. He fouled a three-point shooter in the Alabama game. That was a rough one. He, he, has, he has some kinks he needs to iron out, and that's fine. He's a freshman. You, you expect that. But I don't know that he's definitively in line for more playing time just yet. Next one comes from Scott on Twitter. He says, Hickman in the starting lineup, and should Ben Gregg be taking some of Anton Watson's minutes for extra shooting? So, yeah, I've talked about the starting lineup a few times already. I don't think Hickman's going to step into a starting role. I think it's interesting. 
And I think it's, I don't think it's crazy or that it's a bad idea necessarily, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, in terms of Ben Gregg taking Anton Watson's minutes, this has been a topic that's been discussed on here before. Uh, a, this is kind of an odd game to come after Watson. I'm not saying that you're coming after him, but Watson actually had a pretty good game. Hell, he made a three. He, he went one for one from the three-point line. He was some of Gonzaga's very little three-point shooting in this game. That was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm, I, I was happy to see him take that three and knock it down. I thought that was a good look and a nice shot, and I'm glad he made it. Ben Gregg is a better three-point shooter than Anton Watson, but I don't think definitively that inserting him into the lineup instead of Watson would all of a sudden add this magical amount of offense. I think that's kind of what a lot of people think is like, well, we'll just put Greg in there and then the offense will just be better. I don't think that's the case, to be honest. And, and beyond that, even if it's slightly incrementally better because he can stretch the floor because he's more of a threat to shoot, uh, the the impact on defense would be strong. Ben Greg is a adequate defensive player. I think he's worked pretty hard to get okay at that at that side of the floor, but he is nowhere close to Anton Watson. And playing Ben Gregg more than Anton Watson would probably still be a net negative on this team. In very select, specific lineups where Gonzaga really needs an outside shot, I could see it. But for extended stretches of time, I don't think it's a positive for this team. All right, one-third of the way through discussing the Alabama disaster and what is coming up next for this team. But before we get there, though, I want to tell you about price picks. Price Picks is daily fantasy made easy. I love this app, and I know that you will too. Price Picks is a leader in college sports daily fantasy. They offer more college football props than anyone in the world and offer all the star players from not only the Power 5 schools, but your favorite mid-major programs as well. New users that deposit and use the promo code LOCKEDON will receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100. Price Picks allows mixed sport entries, so you can take the over on Chet Holmgren combined with the under on Patrick Mahomes in the same entry. Use the award-winning app on both the App Store and Google Play. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Don't hesitate. Check out pricepix.com and use promo code LOCKEDON or go to your App Store and download the app today. PricePix is daily fantasy made easy. All right, segment two. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag. Still, unfortunately, discussing the state the Gonzaga basketball program after suffering their second loss in the last three games, sandwiched between a pretty rough performance against Tarleton State. It has been a rough three games for the Zags, and people have some concerns, and we're going to get more into them here in segment number two. This first one comes from John via Gmail. John says, over the last couple of games, I have not been impressed with the coaching. The team has not been ready to play in the last two games, and to me, that is all about coaching. Not X's and O's, but getting the team mentally ready to play. Is there something missing from the coaching approach this year versus other years? And he says, I know I've asked this before, but I've always viewed Tommy Lloyd as the fire and Mark Few as the ice. Together, they were a great compliment. Is the fire missing? Okay, so I get this this line of thinking. I understand Tommy Lloyd's team is probably going to be the two second or third ranked team in the country on Monday when you're listening to this. That's a, a bit rough to swallow. I understand we, we're all happy for Tommy Lloyd and, and, and how much success he's had over there, but I, I know it's, it's burning people up a little bit. Um, I don't think Gonzaga's sloppy play has anything to do with Tommy Lloyd. I got to be honest. I, I don't think their preparation for the game has anything to do with Tommy Lloyd. If the players on this roster who about half of them never played for Tommy Lloyd. That's an important distinction, not just the freshman, but Bolton. You know, he never played for him either. If these guys are unable to get motivated and mentally ready for a game because their assistant coach is not there, we have much bigger problems on this team. I'm not going to say that Lloyd's Lloyd not being here doesn't have an impact. It does. I think the impact of not having Tommy Lloyd is being seen more in 
in-game coaching decisions, substitution patterns, which is something that Tommy Lloyd handled a lot of. And I mentioned earlier in the show that the substitution patterns were really weird on Saturday. So that's something that I think not having Lloyd is impacting them. Set design plays. Uh, I think some of the in-game coaching that happens, you see Tommy over there talking to players and coaching them up in the middle of the games. That's something that I think that they're missing without him being there. So I want to be clear, I, I think that the absence of Tommy Lloyd is having an impact, but not in the way that this question kind of frees it. I don't think that players' mental preparedness uh, is something that Tommy was having a big influence on. I obviously could be wrong about this, but if players <laughs> players really need to be able to find ways to get motivated to play well in these games, and if they're if they're struggling with that, uh, coaching's not necessarily the problem. This next question comes from T Bone Zag on Twitter. He says, "Curious, which coaches are in charge?" of the defense and the offense. Yeah, so Stephen Gentry is kind of the offensive guru. That is my understanding of his role. He's one of the newest members of the staff, so I would imagine that he has a fairly big role in the offense. Uh, Roger Powell, I believe, works mostly with the big men. That's my understanding of what his role is. Uh, and that, in theory, leaves defense to Brian Michelson. I, I don't know exactly how they break all of this up. I think it's a pretty collaborative effort from most of the staff. Obviously, Mark Few has oversight over all of that as well. Um, I don't think that there's super set roles other than Gentry being primarily the offensive guy. This next question comes from Jacob Quarter 2 on Twitter. He says, with this being a pretty overall young team, I think Mark is doing a great job, especially if you look at Penny at Memphis. Yes, that is <laughs> that is true. And he says, but do you think this changes Gonzaga's approach for team construction going with more veterans in the portal than freshmen? Yes. It's, it's, the short answer to this question is yes. Um, I think that Gonzaga's youth on this roster is a bit overblown. I've mentioned that on here before. Three of their five starters have been in college for three or more seasons. Four of their eight rotation players have been in college for three or more seasons, if you include Anton Watson alongside, of course, Andrew Nemhard and Rasir Bolton and Drew Timmy. Uh, and then you, of course, have the freshmen in, Ch in Chet Holmgren and Nolan Hickman. But then after that, yes, Hunter Salas is kind of in the rotation, but he doesn't play a ton. Caden Perry, Ben Gregg, those guys don't play a ton. Julian Strother is a sophomore, but he you know, he's not a freshman. He's been on this team before. I don't think this team is as young as people like to say that they are. They are one of Mark Few's younger squads. And like I said, to answer the question, the Zags have one recruit signed up for next year, Braden Huff. That's it. They have zero recruits for the class of 2023. That will obviously change, and there's a good chance they will add more to their roster in terms of freshmen next season. But there's potentially going to lose three, four, maybe five guys from this year's roster, and the only addition they have coming in is Braden Huff. So yes, they are going to be hitting the transfer portal hard for guys next season. I believe that they're going to have a much older, more experienced team in the next couple of years than they have this year. Next question comes from Christian. He says, this is more than other teams figuring the Zags out, right? You shrewdly and correctly assess the idea that pressuring the Zags guards was one of the keys and was, is clearly working. What is a possible counter strategy? And he says, I feel like a kid who wants answers that they aren't ready for about Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Christian, I'm going to also read John's question here because he had a similar thought. He said, one of the hallmarks of the past great Gonzaga teams has been their passing ability. I was amazed at the passing prowess last year. This year, as teams have defended them a bit differently, meeting the guards earlier, it seems as if it has taken away their ability to make good passes into Timmy down low. Do you agree, and what do you think they need to do to improve that aspect of the game? Do they have the personnel to improve that with Suggs and Ayayi gone? Yeah, so these, this is a great question from both of you, uh, and I think it's kind of the crux of this team's problems right now. We can talk about substitution patterns. We can talk about the team having two big men and not having enough performance from their guard. We can talk about the free throw shooting, which we will. We can talk about the three-point shooting. And all of that is in uh, at some different level problematic. The biggest issue for me is the team is not 
hasn't figured out a good strategy on how to get the ball to their big men. And it's baffling because they were so good at it against Texas. Now, Texas came in with a weird defensive plan that did not work at all, and that was just a mistake by Chris Beard and their staff. UCLA did not stop Drew Timmy and the big men very well either. Part of that was Cody Riley being out. Part of that was just Gonzaga just was absolutely on the money that day. They just had a great, a great day of basketball. So that was kind of part of it. But yeah, these teams have figured out that the best way to stop Drew Timmy is to make it harder for the team to get him the basketball, which seems kind of obvious in hindsight. But the only team that successfully figured it out last year was Baylor. And this year, the first few teams didn't figure it out. And then now that they're starting to, we're going to see more of this. I think John's absolutely right. It's taken their way, they're taking away their ability to make those passes. What we saw from this team that kind of I mentioned this earlier in the show. They tried to run the pick and roll, and they were trying to run the pick and roll to get Drew Timmy into mismatches, which isn't an inherently bad thing. But they were so one-dimensional of every single time we run this pick and roll, we're immediately going to give the ball to Drew. We're giving it up right away. And that makes the pick and roll not as effective. The reason that Stockton to Malone was so effective was not just because of how good of a scorer Carl Malone was. It's because John Stockton knew that occasionally he needs to just go off the pick and go to the rim and get a free throw or get a lay in it or both, or he needs to start to drive, step back, hit an outside shot. You have to be able to make those decisions. And Nemhard has historically been very good at this. And this is what is so interesting is that in this game, he looked very hesitant, he looked very unwilling to go after his own shot. He came off the screen and immediately was just trying to get the ball to Drew Timmy and get everybody out of the way. And that strategy, I mean, Drew Timmy had a lot of points, but there was also Alabama just fouled him a lot and he didn't shoot well from the free throw line. So the offense kind of bogged down to everybody get out of the way, get the ball to Drew Timmy. He'll get fouled. He'll make one free throw and that's it. That was the offense. That cannot be the offense going forward. That is very clearly unsustainable. If I had a, a answer for exactly what they need to do, I would probably have a different job. <laughs> I unfortunately don't know what to tell you exactly on how they need to do this. They need to be more aggressive off the pick and roll if they're going to continue to utilize the pick and roll. That I can tell you with confidence. Beyond that, they trying to get to the high-low sooner is an option. If, if they're getting pressure as soon as they cross half court, get the ball to Chet Holmgren at the th- top of the key as soon as you possibly can. Now, that's putting a lot of pressure on Chet, and he's you know, he's potentially likely to turn the ball over just like the guards do as well. But if you can get the ball to Chet right there and he can turn and square up and then, and the guard, if the guards are behind Chet and Chet's in the top of the key and Drew's underneath the basket, Drew's likely in isolation coverage. There's nobody else helping him because the guards are far away. So potentially he's got one-on-one coverage down low. You try to get him the ball that way. It's tough. And we've seen them attempt to do things like this. And Chet Holmgren is still learning how to make that entry pass. So there's a lot of times where he threw the ball away or he threw it back, he threw it and the opposing player caught it. So it doesn't always work, but that is a potential way to try to isolate Drew Timmy down low. Uh, There's also this other offenses they could attempt to do. They could bring Drew away from the basket, get him the ball earlier and have guards try to run off like little picks off of him, do stuff like that. So there's some options. I don't know if any of them are great options. I don't know if any of them will necessarily work without these players kind of getting a little bit of a check on how aggressive they need to be and uh, tenacious trying to get to their shots and getting their baskets. But the offense that they ran against Alabama very clearly needs to be changed. All right, this next question from John. He says, the body language from our team was unlike any that I have seen from a Gonzaga team ever. It seems as if they're having a crisis in confidence right now. Do you get the same impression? And what are we witnessing out there with their lack of passion and body language? So I'll speak to the confidence, but I will not speak to the passion. This is a passionate group of players. And I think 
and I know that you didn't mean this super negatively, but implying that there is a lack of passion among the players on this team is wildly incorrect. I was at the game against Alabama. I watched these players on the sideline. I did not see the reactions that people might have seen on TV. But yeah, they looked frustrated because they were losing, but they also they were invested in the game. They were not moping. They were not they they were they, you know they were mad that they were losing. I understand that. I do think that there's some confidence things that might be happening here. Um, it's hard to read confidence off players, but uh, speaking you know I spoke about it at length in the previous answer. Nembhard and the other guards who were running these pick and rolls seemed unwilling to try to look for their own shots. And if that was a coaching decision where they said, hey, we're running the pick and roll, but the only directive is to get the ball to Drew Timmy, that's bad coaching. That's not how a pick and roll works. If that wasn't a directive from the coaching staff and these players were just being uh, timid and being unafraid to go try to find their own shots instead of just getting the ball to Drew, that's an issue with the guards. I don't know which one of those two things it was, but there's a very real chance that there is some confidence issues going on, going on with some of these players on this team. And hopefully laying a smackdown on Merrimack on Thursday is going to help right the ship here a little bit. All right, two segments down, one segment to go. We're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions. First, I want to tell you all about Bet Online, Folks, BetOnline is back and better than ever. BetOnline has a new web interface for the start of the NBA and college basketball seasons and features more props, odds, and lines than ever before. BetOnline remains your number one spot for all of the basketball and football action this season. Head to our new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code LOCKEDON to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your favorite sports. Today's episode is also brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. Plain and simple. It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar has nine delicious flavors, including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Built Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Bill Bar flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, and only 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to BillBar.com now and use the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's BillBar.com, promo code LOCKED15, for 15% off your first order at Bill Bar. All right, segment three, still Andy Patton, still Mailbag Monday. Still locked on Zags and still talking Gonzaga, Alabama, the battle in Seattle, and talking a little bit about the future of this Gonzaga team. This next question comes from Dad Risk on Twitter. He says, When's the last time a team whose two most impactful players were bigs won the national championship? And why didn't anyone ask this question sooner? I guess because we didn't think Chet was a center, but he's very clearly also a center. Hard to play two centers. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think people, when the Zags got Chet Holmgren and, and knew Drew Timmy was coming back, were like, oh, well, no no team has won a championship with two bigs, so we should not do that. Like, I, I don't really know what what the problem was with them acquiring these two players. They're obviously very talented. The, the hope was that the guards would step up, and I think that's kind of what's being missed in, in this question is, like, the Zags, the, the Chet and Drew are not the problem. The problem is the guards not stepping up and playing well. The, the, so it looks like Chet and Drew are the only good players in this roster and the two most impactful players, but it's not their fault. They're really good. It's the fault of Rasir Bolton and Andrew Nembhard and Julian Strother for not stepping up and playing better in the last couple of games. That's kind of the biggest issue. To answer the actual question of the 2012-2013 Kentucky Wildcats, Anthony Davis and Terrence Jones were arguably their two most impactful players. Uh, you could probably make an argument that Michael Kidd Gilchrist excuse me, 
was their second most valuable player over Terrence Jones, although Kid Gilchrist was six foot seven, so he was kind of a big man as well. Next question comes from Christian. He says, when was the last time the Zags lost two out of three games? He says, this is not to induce panic or suggest doomsday, but it might help put things in perspective. Also, if you look at our last four champions, they lost an average of four games. Can we find stats that can be our unicorn floaties of hope during this short rough patch? So the last time the Zags lost two out of three games was they lost back-to-back games against Tennessee and North Carolina, who were ranked number seven and number 12 in the country. This was in December of 2018. So it has been about three years, which isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, especially when part of one of those seasons was canceled. Um, but again, those were, I mean, it's number seven and number 12. Gonzaga lost these two games to number two and number, or number five, excuse me, and number 16. So not terribly different. Um, to look for if unicorn floaties of hope, as Christian put it, uh, most teams lose early. That's not uncommon. Like you said, uh, the last four champions have all lost at least two games. Most of them have lost more than two games. Um, Duke and Alabama are really good basketball teams. I think that's uh, something that's maybe getting lost here. A lot of people are acting like Gonzaga lost two very bad schools. They did not. They lost to two really good teams. Uh, it's a bummer, certainly, that they lost those two games. But they also beat two really good teams this year in Texas and UCLA. I know those wins don't look quite as impressive because those teams have struggled a little bit. But still, those are two really good wins. Their losses are not bad losses. The loss to Duke certainly is not bad. It was a three-point loss. This is far and away their worst loss of the season, obviously, but losing to a number 16 ranked team on a night where you just didn't play particularly well and still had a chance to win towards the end of the game is is far from the worst thing in the world. Next question comes from heavydo 44 on Twitter. He says, in my opinion, the Zags really need a player to step up and lead on the court. Whose team is this? This is an interesting one to me because I, I don't think this is in question at all. It's Drew Timmy's team. It kind of always has been Drew Timmy's team. He he's the emotional leader of this team. He is the you know the leader by example on this team. He's the you know the front face of the team. Like there's really not any debate. I I don't know necessarily where this comes from. In the game where Gonzaga struggled, like the Alabama game, Drew Timmy was very clearly their best player. He struggled. Don't get me wrong. He did not have a great game. He struggled at the free throw line, but he stepped up. He made the biggest play of the game to help keep the team in and down the stretch. He was vocal. He was loud. He was trying to get the crowd into the game. He's the guy. He's the leader of this team. Unquestionable in my mind. Next question comes from Christian. He says, Vegas still has the Zags as the betting favorite to win it all at about five to one. Are you buying or betting here? No, I am not. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't mean I don't think the Zags have a chance to win it all. I absolutely think the Zags have a chance to win it all. They have a lot of work to do between now and then, more work than perhaps we thought or hoped that they would um, at you know earlier in the season. But I do think there's a chance that they do it, but 5-1 to one is not great odds for a team that is probably going to be ranked 4th, 5th, 6th potentially in the country after this week. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be putting my money on that if, uh, if, if I was a gambling man. Next question is another one from Christian. He says, the ESPN headline on the game with Alabama was number three Gonzaga tripped up by hot shooting Bama. He says, it's not a criticism of ESPN or headlines, but this is not the story of the game, right? Had the Zag shot 70% from the free throw line, the game would have been closer and then anything could have happened. Yeah, so Bama made 10 threes in the first half. <laughs> so hot shooting Bama is pretty accurate. They they were absolute money all game long. They they missed the first couple threes. They were looked a little rusty. And then in the second half of the first half, they just were they got completely on fire. They could not miss a shot. It was shocking every time they didn't put a shot through the rim. So I don't think that that headline tripped up by hot shooting Bama is necessarily inaccurate. Having said that, 
the free throw shooting was pretty clearly a significant issue. And that leads into this next question from John, who says, last night we shot 52% from the line. In the last two games, we have shot 55% from the free throw line. In the games prior to the Tarleton State game, their free throw percentage was 73%. How do you explain their futility in this area over the last two games? Is this a confidence issue? Yeah, we're going back to the confidence thing. I don't really think that it's a confidence thing. I think one thing, sample sizes are tiny. Um, you know, doing statistical analysis on sports, something that I've done a lot of in my life, uh, a two-game sample means basically nothing in the grand scheme of things. It's just not statistically significant. Um, I, I also think that Gonzaga is a bad free-throw shooting team. And I think the fact that they were shooting 73% up to that game was probably probably on the high end of their, like that was probably statistically insignificant in a way that made it seem like they were a better free throw shooting team than they are. They're probably not as bad as 52%. I mean, I, geez, I hope they're not as bad as 52% all season long. But to be quite honest, this is not a good free throw shooting team. The players on this team who get fouled the most and go to the free throw line the most are not very good at making free throws. It's a, it's a problem. It's a factor on this team. It's something that's going to continue to be an issue all year long. I don't think that looking at their two most recent games and seeing how bad they were uh, is anything that's statistically significant or necessarily something that we should dwell on why that might have happened. But I just think that this is a bad free throw shooting team and we just saw them shoot. We saw a bad free throw shooting team spend two consecutive games being a bad free throw shooting team. That's kind of all that happened in my mind. And, it, and you could argue that it maybe didn't completely cost them the game, but it had a pretty big impact. All right, not not the most fun way to start the week, unfortunately, because of the Alabama game. But Mailbag Monday is done and dusted. Things are going to get better this week. We got Merrimack on Thursday. We got a potential preview of the UDEB game on Sunday, depending, of course, on their COVID situation and whether they're able to play that game or not. Of course, we'll have WCC Wednesday. We'll have Andy Locks. We'll have a recap on the Zags and the NBA. All right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts, and now available on YouTube. Go to youtube.com, search Locked On Zags, hit that subscribe button for me. I would appreciate it. Podcast links will also be available on Twitter at Locked On Zags and on my personal Twitter account, which can be found at ScoreZagsScore. Finally, thank you again for making this show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling and is your daily one-stop shop for all of your gambling needs. All right, thank you all for listening and go Zags.